If you have Bibles, we are in the book of James this morning, continuing on in that series that we've been in for a couple months now. Uh, James chapter 4 is where we are today, and if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Rachel mentioned, uh, page 1013 uh, is where you will find today's text. Uh, We are about uh, 10 or 11 days into Lent, and this Lenten season every year affords us the opportunity to consider not, a, not, a, not an exciting consideration necessarily, but to consider the sin that remains in us, uh, where we have in our lives become inattentive to God, where we've become inattentive to uh, the remaining aspects of that sinful nature that persist in our hearts. And there are forms of sin uh, that both culturally uh, in our society as well as subculturally in the American church mask themselves as virtues. So rather than repent of those things as we're called into, especially during the season of Lent, we embrace them. Uh, We become comfortable with them. We incorporate those things into our lives rather than steer away from them and turn from them. And it often takes uh, strong language uh, or really jolting imagery or loving but really bold correction to reawaken us to reality where, where sin has become a value in a culture or a subculture. And as we've read in this book of James, I'm sure you've noticed there's no shortage of any of those things in James's letter. Bold, uh, but loving, correction, strong imagery, strong language. And in today's text, he draws our attention to a few different expressions of our arrogance. How, what does our arrogance look like when it works its way out from our heart and into life? As you heard Shay reference uh, just a little while ago in our time of confession, uh, this arrogance, this pride, it's rooted in our living as if God's existence either isn't true or doesn't matter. And as James points this out, he's going to say that living this way, living in this arrogance or this pride, it's evil. Evil is often a word uh, that we reserve for the Larry Nassers of the world, Uh, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the, the ISIS, the Boko Harams. But it's a word that James is going to apply to the arrogance of well-to-do, respectable, otherwise ordinary people in these churches to whom he writes. So having rehearsed the gospel together already this morning, having uh, confessed our sin, having heard the good word of the gospel, the words of encouragement, and with a renewed desire for God to, especially in the season of Lent, to expose and to root out that sin that remains in us, I'm going to invite you now to listen, hopefully, with open ears to this book that we love. This is James chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, now as we have heard your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. 
Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth and shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So the three expressions of arrogance that James rebukes, that James calls out and rebukes in this passage are these. Self-referential planning, assuming tomorrow, and neglecting to do good. Self-referential planning, assuming tomorrow, and neglecting to do good. So first, let's talk about self-referential planning. Verse 13 really begins a new section in this letter that James is writing to these churches. Come now, you who say. Who are the you to which James refers here? Who are the you? In these next parts of his letter, uh, James is specifically addressing well-to-do people and some of the sins that well-to-do people are especially prone to. So in chapter 5, which we'll get to next week, he'll talk about oppressing the poor. Uh, He'll talk about storing up riches for ourselves. And those are perhaps uh, the more obvious sins of the wealthy. The ones in in these verses at the end of chapter 4 perhaps are a little more subtle. But I invite you to consider this this morning. These are forms of sin that require upward mobility and some level of wealth. Why? Well, because not everyone has the freedom, not everyone has the flexibility to go where they want to go and to do what they want to do. In the history of humanity across the globe, it's an incredibly small percentage of people who have the luxury to consider the questions that James is pointing to in this text. Some of you are perhaps familiar with a, a stand-up comedian named Dave Chappelle. Um, I won't recommend Dave Chappelle's stand-up to you because if you're familiar with it, you'll know it's, there's very inappropriate aspects to that. But laced within it is really insightful stuff. For example, in one of his recent specials, he talked about a letter that he'd received uh, where someone had responded to him and written him a letter expressing anger and frustration at some of the jokes that he'd made. And Dave Chappelle said in, in his stand-up said this, When I read that letter, in the moments after I read it, I did something that many black men in America do not have the time or the money to do. I thought about how I felt. I thought about how I felt. Not everyone has the luxury to stop and think about how they feel or to plan out their lives and to plan out their futures. Now, to you and me, at least for most of us, that's not obvious because many of us in this room have for the majority of our lives, had those luxuries. And so it's important for us to step back and to get some perspective together if in our lives we've been able to entertain questions like, what do I want to do with my life? How do I want to, how, what are the places where my passions and my gifts overlap with the opportunities that are available to me? And what kind of jobs or hobbies or other kinds of pursuits in my life do I want to pursue? If we've asked those kinds of questions, then we are part of a privileged class of the human race throughout history. And I'm not asking you to apologize for that this morning. Uh, That's an incredible gift, and we need to see it as such. What I'm trying to say in this is that the moment that we lose sight of that is the moment that some really deep-seated sin starts to wrap itself around our hearts, where we can become arrogant without even realizing that we are arrogant where we can start to assume that, well, if just everyone else was as smart as me uh, or everyone else worked as hard as I worked, they would have the same kinds of opportunities that I've had. And can I just tell you this this morning? That is just not true. It's a flat-out lie. 
This is where we can start to look down our nose at people who don't get to entertain these kinds of questions that maybe have been for you or your family for generations, just standard questions that we get to ask. But our blindness to that isn't even the worst part of it. The worst part of it, what James is saying here, the epitome of arrogance is losing perspective of who is really in control of life. It's planning our lives in reference to self rather than in reference to God. Today or tomorrow, verse verse, uh, 13, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James here is specifically addressing merchants, uh, those who would travel from place to place and sell their goods. Merchants were among the wealthy class of people in the first century Roman Empire. And James here is rebuking them for their evil in their self-referential planning. Notice what James is not rebuking. He's not rebuking planning. He's not rebuking profits or even the desire to make a profit. There are dangers to being profit-minded. We'll talk more about that next week when we get to chapter 5. But the real issue here is the lens through which we see the world. Whether or not God or self is at the center of our vision. The remedy, down in verse 15, is to instead say, if the Lord wills, then we will do these things. But that's not some kind of magical incantation that we can slap on as some kind of label to whatever it is we already want to do. The words don't matter near as much as the attitude of the heart, as a different way of seeing and understanding the world. That set of lenses where we really believe if the Lord wills, we will do these things. That set of lenses is humble. Uh, It's dependent. It recognizes that if anything is going to happen in this life, it's because God is at work and is on the throne. The other set of lenses, the one that we're prone to in our arrogance, presumes that God is not at work. And therefore, we have to take things into our own hands. We need to plan and to live and to work without reference to him. So let me ask each of you this morning, are you aware of your present need for the sustaining and providential care of God? Are you aware of your present need for that? Not just do you believe the doctrinal truth that God is in control and you are not. I would, I would say if we surveyed people in this room, the vast majority of people would say, yeah, I believe that doctrinal truth. So not just that, but do you have a feeling sense of that truth and a feeling sense of your present need? If we're honest, uh, many of us live our lives, or at least large components of our lives, as though the existence of God is inconsequential. Like if all of, if all of this is a myth, if God isn't real, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, how much of your life, uh, how much of your decision-making, how much of your living situation and your job and the other things that make up your life, how much of that would have to change? if our lives would look exactly the same, if our lives would still make complete sense to everyone that we cross paths with, that means that we're living as though the existence of God is really inconsequential, functionally. It means that our lives are self-reliant. It means that our lives are self-referential. And Lent is a great opportunity to step back and to take stock of that. When we give things up, during the season of Lent. That's not an exercise to prove how spiritual we are. Uh, It's not supposed to be just some kind of empty ritual or tradition. It's not to show how self-disciplined we can be. 
we give things up, we deny ourselves usual and really in many ways good comforts in order to be reminded that we really are dependent on God. It's a tangible reminder. It's a way to tangibly connect a physical need to your always and ongoing spiritual need for Jesus. And personally, this Lenten season has been particularly convicting for me in that because as I stepped back and took stock of my life and still am, I'm realizing that between caffeine for like 75% of the day, alcohol for like the other 25% of the day, junk food, and mindless passive entertainment like TV and social media, I've got a pretty good system to cope with the anxieties of life, with the stresses of life that really doesn't require Jesus to be active and present at all. And maybe you can relate to that. Uh, I was tempted to try to give up all four and was wisely counseled out of that. Because, you know, we need some comforts in life, I guess, to help us. I gave up one of those, but even starting with that one has been, has been, has, God has used to show a spotlight on how self-referential and self-reliant my life is and can be. And all of that to say, it really is a gift to make plans and to consider our future. Even the opportunity to ask and wrestle with questions like these, that's a kindness that's afforded by the hand of God. And so for us to turn around and to live without reference to God is among the greatest of inconsistencies. Instead, we must say, as James says, we must actually believe that if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. We must live aware of our present need for him and make our plans with active dependence in our sovereign and sustaining Heavenly Father. Second expression of arrogance that James talks about here is assuming tomorrow. Assuming tomorrow. Verse 14. Do you not know, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is one of the most uh, recognized images in all of James's letter, that life is a mist. Or maybe your translation says vapor. Life is a vapor. And James adds this here to the other metaphors of Scripture that talk about the transitory and temporal nature of our lives on this earth. We are, in various passages of Scripture, described as grass that withers. We read that today during our Scripture for confession. Uh, we are shadows. We are clouds. We are dew. We are smoke. The imagery of mist here takes it even a step further. Uh, it's not just that we are here today and gone tomorrow. It's not even that we are here today and gone today. Like a mist, like a fog, we are here this morning and we're gone this morning. The, the years of our lives, the years we spend on this earth, are this tiny blip on the radar in the spectrum of eternity. But we don't really live as if that's real most of the time. And one, it's one of the main reasons that we become self-reliant. It's one of the main reasons we become self-referential in our plans is that we're always assuming that we'll have more days, assuming that we'll have more time to actually follow through on these plans. And though that's probably completely normal for you and I to assume tomorrow to make plans like we'll be here tomorrow, we need to see the arrogance that can live underneath that. Because otherwise, what we're prone to do is to embrace this as a value rather than to repent of it as a sin. Why is assuming tomorrow arrogant? Because it presumes to know what only God can know. You and I are not God, and therefore, as James says, 
you do not know what tomorrow will bring. When we assume tomorrow, we presume to know what only God knows. We presume to be God. And that's really why it's evil. That's the evil of our arrogance. It is presuming to be in a position that only God is in. So how do we combat that? How do we combat this arrogance of assuming tomorrow? Well, ultimately, there's a humility that has to be cultivated at the heart level. But from a practical standpoint, there's both an annual rhythm and a daily rhythm that will help you begin to do that. The annual rhythm, probably no surprise to you at this point, is the Lenten season. That's the annual rhythm. When Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, the ashes are this tangible reminder that as God said to Adam, the same is true for us. You are dust, and to the dust you shall return. The death is going to come to us all. So if, if Lent for you is something that you've really chosen in the past to not participate in, uh, if you don't make it a priority to gather uh, with the church on Ash Wednesday, then as your pastor, I just want to urge you to reconsider that. Not for tradition's sake, uh, not for ritual's sake, but because few things in this life will help you combat the arrogance of assuming tomorrow. Like having someone look you in the eyes and remind you that you were going to die someday. There's nothing like that in your annual rhythm of someone looking you in the eye who cares about you and loves you and says, you are dust and to the dust you will return. Even more frequently, because we need more reminders than once a year, even more frequently than Ash Wednesday or Lent, there's also a daily rhythm that will help you cultivate this humility. And it's this. It's to pay attention to the death that is around you. Because if you're willing to actually open your eyes, death is around you all the time. All the time. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 90, life on this earth is fragile It's brief and it's broken. A scholar named Michael Wilcock points out how this will help us cultivate humility, how paying attention to death helps us cultivate humility. Michael Wilcock says this, We may say readily enough that we believe God is eternal, but we need to be reminded repeatedly that our life in this world is not. For every advance in medical or environmental technology that helps to reinforce the illusion that it could be, every death is a little undermining of humanity's pride. Every death, isn't that a great line? Every death is a little undermining of humanity's pride. We have had no shortage of reminders of that over these past couple weeks. Last Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, 17 people were murdered at Dunbar High School in Parkland, Florida. Most of those 17 were students. They didn't get... 70 or 80 years, they got 15 or 16, right? Life is a vapor. Life is a mist. When we see children die, that that reality becomes inescapable. And here's, however, how backward we are as a society. We don't learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn from this. Within hours, the focal point of that tragedy became what? The gun debate, the gun control debate. No longer that 17 lives have been lost, but what we should do about guns. When that debate is not so much a debate, I'm sure you've observed this yourself, it's not so much a debate as it is an indulgence in self-righteous grenade throwing on both sides, on both sides. There could not be a more severe contradiction than that. Instead of death humbling us, cutting off our pride at the knees because life is a vapor, what we're prone to do instead is to double down on our arrogance and attack other human beings created in the image of God. Death should undermine our pride. 
not embolden us or entrench us in it. And then this week, as I'm sure many of you have seen in the news, uh, Billy Graham passed away. You want to talk about a life that's well-lived. That's Billy Graham. In contrast to the tragedy of those 17 lives lost in Florida, the fact that Billy Graham lived to 99 and lived such a full and faithful and fruitful life makes his death just about as beautiful as a death can be. And yet, death came to Billy Graham. He he was such a pillar of Christianity, it was tempting to think at times that maybe it wouldn't. And maybe he was going to be like the Elijah of the 21st century and God was just going to send a chariot down to pick him up and he wouldn't have to go through that. But no, Billy Graham died too. To the dust, he now returns. These deaths are are the ones that show up in our news cycle. Closer to home are the deaths of people and the dying of people that you know and love. People among your family and your friends and your neighbors and coworkers. Death is, is painful. And so our natural inclination when we encounter that is to turn away from it, to distance ourselves from it and from those who are experiencing it. Instead, as a daily rhythm, pay attention to the death that is around you. Step toward those who find themselves nearing death or mourning the death of others in their families' lives. Because in this attentiveness to death and in this attentiveness to fellow image bearers who are made in the image of God, it becomes more and more inescapable that the same thing, the same fate awaits you someday. And if you find yourself in a moment in your life, which maybe this will happen occasionally, where no one around you, no one that you know is experiencing death or experiencing dying, then I would encourage you to pick a day sometime in the coming weeks and spend an hour or two at a cemetery. Spend an hour or two at a cemetery. Find the gravestone of someone who died at roughly the same age that you are now. At roughly the same age you are now. Um, It's morbid, but that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. It's a powerful reminder that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Every death, as Michael Wilcox said, is a little undermining of humanity's pride. So when death happens around you, whether tragically or beautifully, let that lay siege to a little bit more of your pride. Let it assault this arrogance of assuming tomorrow. The third and final expression of this arrogance that James talks about here, neglecting to do good. Neglecting to do good. Verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When we think about sin, we most often think about sins of commission. Uh, The things that we do that we should not do. Uh, Most of the Ten Commandments, for example, are framed that way. You shall not, you shall not, murder, steal, bear false witness, lie, covet. But sin is also omission. Uh, Sin is also failing to do the good that we are supposed to do. And here, James helps us further understand omission. Namely, that there's a difference between ignorant omission and negligent omission. Ignorant omission happens when we're unaware of what we're supposed to do. So here's a really encouraging thought for your Sunday morning and your Sunday afternoon considerations. There are sins in your heart at this moment that you have no idea at present are there. No idea at this moment that they're there. That's how pervasive sin is. That's how much it affects the different aspects and components of our lives. And God in his kindness 
doesn't reveal every single aspect of our sinfulness to us the minute that we become a Christian, because can you imagine how destroying and crushing that would be? Like, who would want to press on in that if that was how it happened? So there are omissions happening right now that that you're not aware of in your life, and someday, if you are given that gift of someday, your eyes will be open to that, and you'll be shocked to to think how you could have missed that ever in your life before. Like every few years, I look back on my life from a few years ago and think, was I even a Christian then? Did I really, like how could I have not seen that in my life until now? Here though, James isn't talking about ignorant omission. He's talking about negligent omission, where we do know the right thing to do and we fail to do it anyway. So you, you know, and maybe this will, God will even use this to bring things to mind right now. You know you need to have that conversation with your friend or with your spouse, or someone else in this room, in the church. But it's going to be a hard conversation. It's going to be painful. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. So you pass on it, and you keep passing on it. Or you see that person who's in need, who needs practical help, who needs financial help, who needs help getting access to different organizations and other kinds of services that are provided. But you're tired when you see them, and it feels like maybe that's somebody else's responsibility. So you pass. James says here, negligent omission is sin. But it's a form of sin, it's a form of evil, as he calls it, that flies under the radar. And it especially flies under the radar among Christians and among churches and circles that are more theologically conservative. Uh, that's how I've, I've seen that play out that way in my own life, at least, where I'm prone to focus much more on avoiding sins of commission rather than actually being attentive to the good that I ought to do and yet am not doing. And even in theologically conservative circles, we do this in the name of keeping ourselves unstained from the world. We want to try to retreat a little bit from people that are immersed in their sinfulness. That's important. It's important to keep ourselves unstained from the world. James is the one who has said that throughout this letter. But the fact that moments later in the same letter, he points out the evil of negligent omission, that means it's possible for you and I to be just as stained by our omission as it is by our commission. Now, what do sins of omission have to do with anything else James has said already in this text? Verse 17, and maybe you felt this as we read it, it feels a little bit like an addendum. Like James is just kind of rattling off, oh, and by the way, if you don't do good things you're supposed to do, that's wrong too. James, though, specifically ties this together. The word so, or therefore, is what begins verse 17. In his mind, these things are are linked. Here's the connection as best as I can discern it. Negligent omission is just another expression of our arrogance. It's choosing to live against the grain of what God has revealed and what God has called us into. As the prophet Micah said so many years before this, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. He has shown us. So if that's true, We're not ignorant. He has shown us we know what to do. We're negligent. And so knowing what to do and failing to do it, it's not just rejecting good. Ultimately, it's to reject God. It's intentionally choosing not to live in light of what God has revealed. It's choosing myself and my own way over God and his. So all three of the things James talks about in these few verses are expressions of our arrogance. We know that God is real. 
yet we plan our lives as if he is not. We know life is a mist, and yet we live as if it is not. We know the right things to do, and yet we neglect to do them. And herein lies the real evil of living this way. If we plan our lives without reference to God, if we assume tomorrow, if we neglect to do the good that we know we should do, that means that we are capable not only of those things, we're capable of living any and every aspect of our lives as if God is not real and present. It means we're capable of living an entire life where the reality and the reign of God is inconsequential, which is exactly how the Larry Nassers and the Hitlers and the ISIS of the world live, as if God isn't real, as if God isn't going to do something about sin and about those who willfully, arrogantly persist in it. But church, here's the good news. God will do something about sin. And even better news, God has done something about sin. Where we plan our lives without reference to the will of God, Jesus came and lived among us and lived a life in submission to the will of God. Not my will, he said, but yours be done. Where we assume tomorrow, Jesus, from the moment he began his ministry, began preparing himself and his disciples for his death. He told them plainly it was coming. And when it neared, rather than arrogantly asserting himself, he humbled himself to death in our place. And where we negligently omit, Jesus not only knew what had to be done, he did what had to be done. And he gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are not negligently omitting the good that they're supposed to do, but are zealous for good works. And so, friends, as James has rebuked our arrogance and our boasting in our arrogance, let's end here. Let us be people who boast, but not in our arrogance and not about tomorrow. Let us boast instead in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let us boast in our weaknesses and our failures and our frailty, for they will only further display the majesty and the mercy of our great God and Savior. So may we repent of the evil of our arrogance, and may instead we live in light of and forever boast in the eternal and redemptive work of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us, and we'll come to the table. Forgive us, Father, for our arrogance, and forgive us for where these forms of arrogance even become values in some ways in our hearts. Pray that this Lenten season would afford us the time and space to step back and to perceive where pride, where arrogance exists in our hearts and where we are not living our lives with you at the center reference point. And pray, Father, that you would expose that in us, that that would be our good, that we would step out of this darkness and into the light where you forgive and heal and purify for yourself a people zealous for good works. We're grateful, Jesus, that though we are prone to not submit ourselves to your will, and where we're prone to assume tomorrow, where we're prone to neglect to do good, we see at this table your finished work in which you've done all of those things that we did not. Submitted to the Father, you gave up your body and blood. You humbled yourself to the point of death in our place for our sins and our forgiveness. And you did the good that you knew must be done in order to buy us back from our sinfulness. 
So I pray that we would step into our own confession and repentance during the Lenten season, knowing that you have finished this work on our behalf, looking to you, making you even more the center point of our reference in our lives for any decision that we make. We pray Jesus all these things uh, in your name.